I love it that he says, in Christ you're a new creature. All things are passed away. And behold, all things, all things are become new. Amen? That's great. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would open this next section of scripture to us. And Lord, speak to our hearts again by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we looked at John chapter 4, and now we're going to look at John chapter 5. And um, I would say that if this was a cardboard testimony, he would say crippled <laughs> and healed by Jesus. What a wonderful Savior we have. The book of Mark has so many miracles in it, and John also tied some in. Not as many. Um, John was concentrating on Jesus at the feast and what was going on with all of that and the conflict our Lord had in Jerusalem and the stronghold of the Jewish prejudice against him. And the problem was the Pharisees were so under the law and the Sadducees were very legalistic. And in all of that, they had the law, but they didn't have any life in it. And so they became very prideful because they thought, I kept the law. Remember Paul said, I was Pharisee of Pharisees. That meant he really kept the law. And he you know, had a great deal of pride in that until he found Jesus and got knocked off the horse or donkey, whatever it was, and, and then just poured out his life to the point that he never really cared if he died. Shipwrecked, beaten, let down over a wall, in prison, I mean, how many times? And when he met Christ, all the laws that he kept before were not anything compared to the life in Jesus. And so when you meet people that say, well, I'm a good person or I've done all this and that, it doesn't really, it, it's a good thing to be a good person. It says, you know, we need faith with works because we need to live the Christian life. But the works won't save you. Only the Redeemer can save you. And so that helps eliminate pride, too, in that, isn't it? If works could save us, we wouldn't have needed a Savior. He wouldn't have had to come to die. Well, in looking at this chapter, this is also another great story in Scripture, and this is about the man by the pool of Bethesda. How many of you have been to Israel? Oh, lots of you. How many of you have been to the pool of Bethesda? I want you to picture that today, because I have been there as well. And this is where this scene was going to take place. It's just wonderful. Israel is just, it makes the Bible come alive. It's just, it's great. There's a pull on that that's like no other. But um, the Lord is so good in giving us these chapters. I wanted to say that, um, I wanted to tell you just a short story about Mike, my son, Pastor Mike, how he got saved. So my oldest son was, um, got saved when he was young, I told you, at seven, and he was quite enthusiastic about an evangelist. He has a great approach to people. He loves on them, and, and then they ask questions, and he talks to them about Jesus. So he was exactly three years older than the next child. So there was Marcus, Mike, and then the last one we named after my husband. I said, last chance, <laughs> he looks like you. So we named him Don after my husband. But Marcus and Michael were born on the exact same day, January the 
the 5th, the day after my husband's birthday. It's a terrible time of year to have a birthday, I'm telling you. And they were born the exact same minute, three years apart. And they're nothing alike. They are just two different personalities. And, and consequently, they really loved each other because they were so different. Marcus said, I, I could tell, you know, I could tell Michael anything and he'd never repeat it. And then Michael would say, you know, Marcus is the most fun person I know. So they're just two opposite personalities. So they were, they were roommates as, as children and we had bunk beds. My husband, it was Sunday morning, was going to a church early. He always went before us. I would come later with the kids because I'd get them ready and he needed to go be quiet and go over sermon. And so we were living in the mountains in Lake Arrowhead, California at the time and the church was up there in the conference center. So he had gone and I had told the boys to get ready for church. And the youngest one, I think, was still in a crib at that point. I don't remember. But anyway, um, I walked by their room. And they were not getting dressed for church. They were three and six years old. And I would normally burst in the room and say, guys, you've got to get dressed. We've got to get going. We're going to be late to church. But that day, it's like Jesus just slapped his hand over my mouth, which is always a miracle. And, and I just, I stood in the doorway and watched. And the two of them were on the floor, kind of cross-legged like little monkeys. And they were in this intense conversation with each other, facing each other. And this was the conversation. Michael, your problem is you just need to be born again. This is Marcus at six. And Michael, for some reason, had a Boston accent when he was little. He, he couldn't <laughs> quite get the R's. So he said, I know, Maki. I'm so sick in my heart. <laughs> and Marcus is, is going at him. He, you know, Michael, you'll feel better. I'm telling you, you'll feel better if you just ask Jesus in your heart. I know, I know Mark, yeah, sick in my heart. So I go in and I think, okay, this is a great conversation. So I get right down on the floor with the boys and I, I say, Michael, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart right now? I'm telling you, they're not too young. If they understand it at all, get them saved. So I just said, let's clinch the deal. I said, Michael, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart right now? Uh-huh, mama, because I'm so sick in my heart. <laughs> I go, okay, okay. So Marcus and I pray with Michael. He asked Jesus in his heart, and we all look up, and Michael vomits all over the carpet. He was not sick in his heart. <laughs> he was sick in his stomach, and he had the flu. None of us went to church that day, but we got Michael saved, so it was worth it. So that's the story of how Michael came to Christ. You know, I have, an, I have another granddaughter that lived with us for a while. Uh, her parents lived with us, and then she got pregnant and had Madison while they were at our house, and then she had Taylor while they were at our house. It was quite exciting. It was really a lot of fun, and we were on the road a lot at that time, traveling and speaking, so they took care of the house. So it, it worked out great. But I so wanted Madison to come to Jesus, and I really a firm believer in you need to lead these children to Christ when they're little. And so I would one time talk to her, and I said, Madison, you know, um, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart? No. <laughs> okay. She wasn't getting it yet. She was still pretty little. And I said, you know, to her mom, Erin, I said, you know, if you talk to Madison about you know, accepting Jesus, she said, I don't think she gets it, Mom, yet. I think she's too little. Okay. So I waited. Well, then they were going to move out. They'd had Taylor by this time. They found a house of their own, and they were moving out that week. 
And I was walking um, with Madison. She was three years old, and she was in a little cart, you know, that I was, was pulling. And I, I just said, Madison, the Lord just spoke to I didn't tell her that. The Lord spoke to my heart and said, now. Now talk to her. It was just, like, so heavy on my heart. I said, Madison, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart? And she said, yes, I would. And I go, okay. So then I said, um, Madison, let's just pray right now and ask Jesus in. And she said, okay. And she prayed with me to accept Jesus. I'm not kidding you. The kid changed. She, she just got better. You know, she had been a little bit stubborn and a little bit rebellious and, you know, that three-year-old. And she just had a heart that grew towards the Lord. And when she was born, she came home from the hospital to my house. I was kind of excited about that. Her parents often let me put her to bed at night. And I would hold her in my arms, and I would sing her worship songs, and I would say, Madison, Jesus loves you. You know, the Jewish moms would whisper in their baby's ears when they were born, and they were tiny, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. And I used to say, Madison, Jesus loves you. So when she accepted Jesus, I was so excited. You know, she, she was open door. Well, after Taylor was born and they moved out, they wanted to have the girls dedicated to the Lord, and they were going to um, John Randall's church, which you might have heard of. And um, so they asked if my husband and John Randall would each take a child and pray for them. It was kind of fun. So Aaron, my daughter-in-law, said, you need to prepare Madison for this. She's talky, and, you know, I didn't know what she was going to do from the platform because another pastor's granddaughter said she was going to be dedicated to the Lord. She said, oh, I've got a lot I want to say to the people. And so they had to tell her, you can't talk when you're up front. So I thought, I better, I better prepare Madison for this event. So I said, Madison, tomorrow you're going to be in church, and Papa and Pastor John are going to pray for you and um, give you to Jesus. And she got this look of great concern on her face, and she said, is Jesus going to take me home right then? I go, no, 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 you're not going to heaven right then. We're just going to ask him to lead and guide your life. So um, she's up in there praying for her, and she gives me this big, big grin from, you know, from up front, and it was just fun to watch, but she didn't say a word. She was very good. And then she came to my house after that for visits, and she would pray at meals, and she loved to pray. And I remember one time she was praying, it was a very long prayer, and she thanked Jesus for such a wonderful friend that she had and such a wonderful day. And then after that, um, she was praying at lunchtime, and she was praying um, and thanking Jesus that he gets rid of all the bad guys around us. And I go, okay, well, this is good news. She knows that God overcomes the world. This is good. So I, I said to her mom, you know, I said, you and Dawn dedicated your girls to the Lord on Sunday. And Madison has taken this very seriously. She says, yes, she has. <laughs> so I'm just telling you those stories about children. Don't be afraid to witness to the children in your family, in your relatives' family, praying for the neighbor kids. Have them come over and tell them Bible stories. That's what my mom did. And it was just such a blessing because children are easy to lead much more than adults. And so I encourage you that, talking about um, salvation last night with a woman at the well. 
it's nice to get them saved when they're young before they go through those kind of things in life. Well, this is a great story, and this is um, one of those wonderful miracles that happened at the pool. The scripture is given for us for instruction, and as this chapter, once again, there is much to learn. Even at the Pool of Bethesda, it's a beautiful picture of teaching us how Jesus worked and how to live our lives and the lessons he wanted us to know. This is a message of healing. My dad was a doctor. He was a, a surgeon and um, graduated from the University of Minnesota. And when he was 40, he decided to specialize. And he went to the Mayo Clinic and specialized. And then they moved out to California. He had seen California in the winter one time with my mom. They had visited friends. And they saw flowers actually growing beside the road in the middle of winter. And they said, we're moving here. It's kind of like Florida. You know, we're out of New York, we're out of Minnesota. We're going where the flowers grow in the winter. And so he said, I'm never shoveling snow again. And they moved to California. And I was one years old when they moved to California. And so that's where I grew up. Well, my dad had been, after I was grown up and married, he had been looking at Catherine Coleman on the TV. Have you ever heard of Catherine Coleman? She had this ministry where she prayed for people to be healed. She was very eccentric and very unusual, but she really loved the Lord Jesus. And so she had a program on television, and my mom would tune it on once in a while, and she would be praying for people. And my dad was kind of fascinated by this, being a doctor, and he said, you know, I'd like to see a miracle. I really, as a physician, would like to put my hands on a miracle. I want to see the person sick beforehand, and I want to see the miracle after. I just want to see one, because I really do believe God can do that. I just want to put my hands on one. Just a few months later, he developed a uh, lump in his right arm just, just below the elbow on the inside. And um, I remember going to visit them one time, and they were telling me about it. And I just said, oh, it's just tennis elbow. You know, it's just gout. And he said, oh, you think so, Dr. McClure, because he would tease me. And so he, what he had done, he, he went to um, the hospital where he worked, and he had uh, one of the other doctors do a biopsy, and it was a very nasty form of cancer, very fast-growing. I don't remember the name of it. That weekend, he came down to where we were working with Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa in the early 70s. Don was on staff there, and he asked Don to pray for him. He asked Chuck to pray for him. And I didn't know what was going on. He took me out in the kitchen. He said, I just want to tell you, honey, I've got cancer. And I just started crying because I didn't know if it was in his whole body. And he put his arms around me, and he said, don't worry. It's in Jesus' hands. Now, if you knew my dad, that was a shocking statement because all his life he had been afraid of cancer. He saw too much of it in the early days. They didn't have as much help in those days. And so he, he always was afraid he was going to get cancer. That was his one fear. So for this to happen to him, he told Don, he said, my husband, he said, I was hoping God do something to you, but he did it to me. <laughs> so it, it's really real when it happens to you. And so that Monday he went in and they did the surgery. It was the size of a golf ball. They removed it. And the next day, uh, was, those were the days where they kept you in the hospital. And uh, the surgeon came in and said, Phil, my dad's name was Philip. He said, uh, I don't know how to explain this to you. He said, what? He said, well, we have the biopsy, and it's this kind of cancer. Yes. Well, we took out the tumor, and there's no trace of cancer anywhere in it. 
And my dad said, praise God, it's my miracle. Because that's impossible when something has become malignant and cancerous, it doesn't change. And he knew that he knew that he knew that was his miracle. And the thing that was so great is that God used it as a testimony because people believed him because he was a doctor. And they would see this horrible scar in his right arm and say, what happened to you? And you know, God will use those miracles in your life as a witness, as a great witness. Don't hide them. Share them with people. And this chapter begins with the story of a man who had waited for many years for such a miracle. I'm sure he was discouraged, and if I were he, I would have given up all hope. And Jesus found him on this day, and he answered his prayers. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had infirmity 38 years. Now when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Let's just stop there for a minute. There was some months between um, the last chapter and this chapter, and John, I told you, zeroed in on the feast and what was going on with Jesus there and his ministry there. And so we come to this next chapter of this miracle. Jesus came to the feast to worship like good Jewish men did. They were commanded to go to attend the great feast. There were three feasts a year, which the men were required to attend, often bringing their families with them. And John shows Jesus attending this great feast. It's interesting that Jesus didn't disregard the obligations of Jewish worship. In fact, I think of him going to this feast. And in those feasts, they would have the sacrifices of the animals. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that there is a ravine that runs down from the altar and from where the temple area is, down the Kidron Valley. And it would be filled with blood at the time of these feasts because they were sacrificing animals. And I sometimes think, what did Jesus feel when he saw that? Knowing that that was a type of him soon to come on the cross, that his blood too would flow for the sins of the world. What did that mean to him as he thought about that? Bethesda is very near the sheep gate inside the city wall. And the word here that they use to say pool, pool of Bethesda, actually means to dive. And if you've been there, you know that this is a very deep pool. It has the porches around it, and they have excavated this pool, and it's really deep. It's a, you know, I, I can't tell you how many feet, but a few stories deep. And so to dive would be a perfect description of this pool in the city. It was fed by springs, and they think that that's what caused the water to bubble. Whether it healed people or not, I don't know if that was just tradition for them or whether it really did. Obviously, some people must have gotten healed or they wouldn't have passed this on. But whatever it was, these springs would cause the bubbles to come up in the water, and the person that could get in first, they said, was healed. So this is where Jesus comes to this gate. In some of the original texts, there's more added about that. 
But it doesn't really matter what happened with the bubbling of the water because we're going to focus on Jesus in this chapter. This man had been there for 38 years. Can you imagine? That's a lifetime for some people, almost 40 years old. And every day on his bed, he parks himself by the pool. I don't know if someone took him home at night or what happened, but he was there. Don't you think that would get pretty old and pretty discouraging? J. Vernon McGee said in his commentary that he'd visit um, a place where children were kept that had tuberculosis years ago and were cared for. And it was an Easter program that they were putting on, and he was there. And a little boy got up to quote all of the chapter, John 5. And in verse 47, the little boy made one mistake in the whole chapter. And he said, he quoted the verse 3, and he said, In this place lay a great multitude of important folk. And the real reading is impotent folk in, in the ritual, and it means sick people. And he said, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, they were important folk because Jesus went to see them that day. Just like Nicodemus and the woman at the well, Jesus came for this one man. It appears that he walked into that gate and he went right over to that man that was there. And that's why I sometimes wonder, did he go to the worst case scenario in the room and heal them first? And maybe that built faith in so many others. But whatever it was, he came to this man, how special that was. And I think of him coming to you and to me on those days that are hard. He comes in looking for you and has things to minister to you. Maybe he had been there the longest. I guess sometimes wonder, 38 years, maybe he, this man had been there the longest. And Jesus worked personally with people. He had great compassion. Do you remember when you came to Christ? Wasn't it personal? Like you were the only person in the room? I came to the Lord when I was seven years old. I was at a um, summer camp meeting with my mom up in a Christian conference ground at Mount Hermon, California. And um, I don't remember what the preacher said that day. I was sitting on the second row. But I just knew at the end I wanted to go to heaven and not hell. And that's the one thing I understood about the sermon. And when he asked if you wanted to be saved, I raised my hand. And my mom, she said, honey, you've already accepted Jesus. She thought I had. She was a good Christian woman. I don't remember accepting him before. I just remember I would not put my hand down, and the tears started running down my face. And this man next to me said, honey, don't let anyone stop you. <laughs> I didn't know the man. But my mom wasn't trying to stop me. I think she wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. And when she saw the tears, she didn't say another word. You know, she knew this was serious. But that was the day, I will tell you, I know that I know that I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. It was personal that day. It was between me and him. And I can go back to that and know that that was my time of salvation. Now, the thing to me that stood so out in this chapter, if that's proper English, is verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Now, you might think that is the craziest, strangest question. He'd been waiting for the pool to bubble for 38 years. Obviously, obviously you must want to get well. But the interesting part of this is some people don't want to get well. Have you known people like that? Sometimes I have myself not wanted to get well. And I don't just mean physically. 
In one of our churches that we had, there was a couple that was very different and unusual, and um, and she would write us notes and tell us that we should leave town, that you know God wanted to call us other places, and that He hadn't called us there. That she knew, you know, we were supposed to leave. Uh, we didn't feel called to leave at all. In fact, we had dug in the trenches and were working hard, and we knew that knew that knew that God wanted us there, and so we just kind of ignored them. And then it got, it just personal. And I remember getting upset with this woman. And she was close to some of my family. And I'm just going, really? So I didn't answer her much. I wasn't rude to her, but it began to bother me. It, it kind of irritated us, both of us. <laughs> and we're going, you know, she felt like she had this gift of prophecy and she was giving this word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. That's why I'm telling you, if the Lord gives you a word for someone, you be careful. You better check it with the Lord. And sometimes it's not always to tell him. You just pray about it and see if the Lord confirms it. But in this case, she kept sending us these letters. And I remember one day I got a call from one of my family and um, they were going over to their house and, you know, all this was going on. And I remember just getting bugged. And the person said to me, you know what, I can't fix this for you. It's like between you and the Lord. And I got off the phone, and I was just so mad. And I remember just being so angry that I said something I'm so ashamed of to tell you. But I said, you know, Jesus, I just hate those people. I went, oops, that was so bad. I just, I don't say that easily. And I just thought, where did that come from? And then I felt his voice speak to my heart. He said, good. Now we have this out in the open, and it's you I'm going to deal with, not them, you. You have harbored this in your heart, this anger towards these people, and you can't do that and serve me. You cannot. And I remember arguing with the Lord, and I said, okay, Lord, if I give this to you and I ask for forgiveness, if they do something again and send me a letter next week, I could open that file cabinet and just dig through it again and be worse than ever. You know how you do that. Oh, here they go again, and then you start going back all over it. And you know what? The Lord just spoke to my heart something, and I know it was him because I would not have come up with this idea on my own. And he said, if you will shut your mouth, I will heal your heart. And I went, oh, my. And I just cried out to him to help me. I called my friend. Don was across the country somewhere, and no one else was home, and... I called a good Christian friend, and I told her what had happened. She knew the whole story. She went to the church. She said, well, are you going to be able to do it? And I said, I don't know. But all that with is in me, I'm going to try and ask him to help me. And people would come to me, just close friends. Only a few really close friends knew about this situation. And they would say to me, oh, how's it going with so-and-so? And I remember saying, I can't talk about it. And the more I did that, the better I felt. And the more I did it, my heart began to heal. And pretty soon, I didn't have a problem with them anymore. I was like relieved of this burden. And then one day the phone rang. And they, she called me. Well, I sent her a nice note at Christmas. Her son was fighting over and... Iraq, and I said, I'm really praying for your son. He's a Marine, good friend of my kids. And she sent me back the nicest card, Christmas. Then she calls, and she said, we'd like to take you out to dinner. So I said, okay. 
and we went out to dinner and they profusely apologized. It was unbelievable. And you know, from that day to this, even once in a while through the years, something else has happened. It just doesn't bother me anymore. And I thought, you know, the Lord, if you want to get well, he'll help you. Even in situations where it's really hard, like forgiveness for someone who's wronged you. God can help you with that, and he'll show you the way. And that's what Jesus was going to do for him if he wanted to get well. And so he comes up with all the reasons. He said, well, I've tried to get in the pool, but, you know, I am crippled here, and so I can't get to the pool in time someone beats me there, and I can't get there. But the thing that was so interesting was that he didn't have anyone to put him in, he said. And the thing is, Jesus wasn't planning to put him in the pool. Jesus wanted his eyes off of the pool and onto him. There was no way he was going to deal with the pool. You just need to look at me. I'm not taking you to that pool. It hasn't helped you in 38 years. But I am right in front of you today. Do you want to be made well? And that's what Jesus wants to do with us. He wants to touch our lives and change us and give us hope. Take our eyes off the things that we think could help us. This man was probably in despair, and Jesus was going to give him hope. Sometimes we go through hard things, and the Lord says, just look at me. A number of years ago, I went to have a mammogram. I didn't want to have it. I hate those things. I think a man invented that machine. And I just go, I, I don't want to do it. And we were traveling a great deal speaking. And it was like, you're home, you have the appointment, and something just made me go, just get it over with. So I did. And then I get a call back. Long story short is they found a lump, and it was cancer. And I got shot through the system really fast. It was invasive. It wasn't huge yet, but it was serious. And so I said, just do major surgery. I just want major surgery. I want this gone. Coming from a mother who was an RN and a dad who was a surgeon, I have a real respect for cancer, and I just go, just, just do whatever you have to do. And so in that process, I remember waking up one morning. You know, when, when you get the report from the doctor, and many of you probably have, that you have cancer or you have this or that, you wake up in the morning thinking everything's fine, and then you remember, and you feel like you're walking in a nightmare. Do you, you know, that feeling? And I remember my husband, it was really hard on him, and he said, I wish it was me and not you. He was so precious. But in going through that, I woke up one morning. It was dark outside. And I remember sitting in the bed thinking, how bad is this going to get? Do I need to look for wigs? Am I going to die? And thinking through all that, I, I just heard this voice in my head almost audible, which I don't often ever hear, but it was the Lord's voice. And what he said through the darkness was, enjoy the journey. And I realized that I'd been shot through the system really fast. I had great doctors. And I realized that God was with me in this. It was the very week I had prayed for Paige. And when I had said, Lord, can you go get her? And what he spoke to my heart was, if I can go get Paige 3,000 miles away in Florida, I can take care of every cell in your body, and whatever you're going to go through, I will be with you, and I will take care of you. Whether I heal you or I don't, you enjoy this journey. And you know I did. And I just saw God do miracles and do great things. And he did spare my life, and I think it was 2011. And so I praise God for that. But the journey 
was so important and what God taught me. He wanted me to look at him. Not at all what the doctor said, not at everything that was going around me, but just keep your eyes on me. Trust Jesus. I give you peace and I've overcome the world. And just know this, no matter what you go through, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you know, with all that floods in peace, doesn't it? It's just like, I'm not alone. He is with me. He is watching over me. And you have to know he loves you. He's going to watch over you. So the man was there, and Jesus had a much better plan than putting him in the pool. He was going to actually take him away from the pool, the pool that had not helped him. Isaiah tells us that God's ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts. And Jesus said, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. And I love the word immediately in all these miracles. Immediately, the man, he picked up his bed and he walked. And God had healed him. And he left his old life behind. And he carried that bed which had so long carried him. He rose above it. That's what God does in our life. You know, many people put off accepting Christ because they're waiting for something to happen. Oh, we need a sign. We're not emotional. We need to be emotional about it. Maybe they have their eyes on something material. They're waiting for the pool to be stirred. I want a sign. I don't know. I'm going to think about it. And all they have to do is look at Jesus. It's so simple to accept Christ, isn't it? And yet they, they just like... And I think sometimes Satan says to him, if you become a Christian, totally boring life. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. It's going to be horrible. When in fact it's the greatest life ever and the most joy and peace that the world never has. But Satan always, the divider, comes in and says, don't go there. I went to uh, college in, in Pasadena, California. It's Point Loma now. It's in San Diego, San Diego, but then it was Nazarene College in Pasadena, and I met a girlfriend there, and we both lived at home with our parents. We didn't board there because our families lived there, and we became good friends. She was a darling, precious girl. Her name was Lynn. And one day I really realized she wasn't born again. She didn't really... You know, a lot of people send their kids to a nice Christian college because they're safe there and it's nice, you know, but they had no idea what salvation was. And I said, Lynn, do you know what it means to be saved? And, you know, it's kind of the same answer that my sister-in-law got. Well, yeah, you're a good person. You do good works. And, and I said, no, Lynn, that's not what it means. And I told her about Jesus and about accepting the Lord. And I said, would you like to accept Jesus tonight? She was over in the evening visiting. My parents were there. And my dad was listening to this conversation. And she said, I want to go home and think about it. And my dad, he's great. He said, you know, Lynn, you can be in a bad accident on the way home tonight and be killed. And this could be, there's things like a doctor. This could be your last opportunity to receive Christ. And immediately she said, in that case, I want to accept him right now. And we knelt down. And she accepted the Lord in her heart. I ran into her a few years ago at a Christmas event I was speaking at. And she moved down to near where I live, and she is a teacher in a Christian school. And she said, I don't know if you remember that night. And I said, what? And she said, I got in a car accident on the way home. I hit a priest. <laughs> we were both fine, but she never forgot it. And it just so stuck in her brain. 
So I'm telling you that story. That so many times we want to put things off. And the Lord says, no, no, no. Now's the time of salvation. Now's the time I want to work with you. Now's the time I want to speak to you. Look at me. Now, he did two things here that upset the religious leader. He healed on the Sabbath. And all through the Gospels, they're all mad at him because he heals on the Sabbath, which has to do with the law, which we already talked about. They were so into the law, they had no life. And the Sadducees didn't even believe in heaven. And I said they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in Jesus and they didn't believe in heaven. And so we had these groups that were very religious. But religion doesn't save you, just like the woman at the well. Jesus saves you. And so they were upset that he healed on the Sabbath. And then he had the man carry his bed. This was what really upset them. How dare, you know, they, their laws were so strict that you could only walk 150 feet on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry a needle in your pocket because that was work. You couldn't... Um, it was just, you know, so many things that they argued about, whether one could do this. In fact, they argued whether you could wear your false teeth or have your wooden leg on on the Sabbath because it was work. I mean, it was insane. And so when the rabbi saw this man carrying his bed, this was a serious offense. And they could stone people for these serious offenses. And so they're upset with Jesus. You know, there's no grace with the law. And Jesus came to bring us grace and forgiveness. He knew we couldn't keep the law. We can't because we're sinners. And so Jesus, in verse 16 and 17, turn over to that. He says, For this reason the Jews persecuted him and sought to kill him, because he had, not done these, he had, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. And therefore, they sought to kill him more, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father. And Jesus is telling the total truth here. And what he's really saying to them is, listen, God works every day. I mean, you know, it says that the universe, the world, is held in place by his word, by Jesus' word. And so we know that every day that's being handled and being taken care of. God's always working. And that isn't what the law meant. And they didn't get it. But he says, and I must be working. And I must do my father's business. And so they, because they were blind. You know, when you are not, you don't know Jesus and you're not born again, it's very hard to understand the Bible. Have you had people say to you, oh, I've read it. I don't really think they have read it much, but they say, oh, I've read it. I don't really understand it. You don't understand it until the Holy Spirit comes in when you get saved, and it says that he is the one who's going to teach it to you. So as you're reading the Word of God, and you go, oh, I get that verse now. I understand it. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you because you are God's child. And so you have the comforter. You have the teacher of the Holy Spirit to teach you. Well, they didn't, and so they didn't get it. And that was the turning point when they really went after Jesus. And from that, um, those Jewish religious leaders went after him with a vengeance. And they didn't stop until they had taken him to the cross and stood watching him with folded arms. That's how bad that was. And it was the enemy just using them because they refused to believe. But Jesus had to be put on the cross because that's what he came to do. And Jesus' answer was full of compassion 
And my father works and I work to do his will. So no matter what day it is, whether it would be the Sabbath or not, you have to have compassion on people. You can't just shut down because I'm going to do the law. That's a pride thing. No, I don't care where you are or what you're doing. We must always have compassion. He always had compassion and love and mercy every day of the week. That never stopped with Jesus. There was no reason to withhold that. Helping people in knees, that's what he always did. Our regular jobs can rest on Sunday. We do Sunday because it's the first day of week when Jesus rose from the dead. And we can rest from our daily labors, but never compassion and never worship and never helping people. That's what we need to do. I, I know there was a church where a woman told me that she had gone to this church and she had an injured back and she needed this special chair. And the usher said, absolutely not and wouldn't help her. So she went to another church in town and the ushers couldn't do enough to help her. That's true Christianity. That's what Jesus means here, to have compassion and help people. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and he told him to sin no more. I don't know if the man's illness had been a result of sin or he was thinking of going into sin, but Jesus dealt with him and said, sin no more. Jesus always came to them and gave them that word that they needed. Today that we have the grace of God, and many think it's okay to live a sinful life and confess on Sunday, and it's all okay, and it is not. You know, there's a lot of scripture that says you can turn away, you know, and you can shipwreck. I know so many people that have shipwrecked, that got into the world, that got into false doctrine, and I really understood that when I begin to look at that parable that Jesus said about the seed going on stony ground and, and where it didn't get watered and nurtured, you know, the roots died and it's like they wanted to come to Christ, but they never really stepped in. They didn't have a devotional life. They didn't pray. They didn't go on with the Lord. When I was in high school, I actually went to high school here for four years in Orlando at a boarding school. It was a Christian school. My parents believed in Christian schools, and they sent me 3,000 miles away to go to Christian school. And you know what? It was not everybody's life, but it was the life God called me to, and I know why. And I, as a pastor's wife, I had to memorize tons of scripture, and I, I learned about people like Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael in that school. And I found things that I knew that I would need the rest of my life, and I have. But um, just in going there, the Lord had used that in my life to really speak to me. And I learned as I was 3,000 miles away at 14 years old, I didn't even go home for Christmas that year, I realized that Jesus was everything to me. That, you know, I had leaned on my parents and they weren't there, and now I could lean on the Lord. And my parents loved me. And I asked my mom when I grew up and had babies of my own, I said, how could you do that to me? I loved it. It was a great school. I felt like I was at camp all year long. My brother had gone there. And so I had a great attitude about it. But I said, how did you do that? And she said, the Lord just really showed me, like Samuel, if I would give you to the Lord, I'd have you when you were older. But if I wouldn't, I might lose you. And so she felt like it was a sacrifice that she gave me to the Lord. And it truly was because it made a huge difference in my life. When you look to the Lord, he will teach you and he will help you. And Jesus went into the temple and ministered to him. I remind myself that it, it is sin that cost Christ Calvary. Is it worth it? Chuck Smith's wife, Kay, used to say, don't do anything that put Jesus on the cross. 
don't do those things that nailed him there. And that's very convicting. Jesus had physically healed the man at the pool, and later he finds him in the temple, and he ministers to him spiritually. It's interesting to me that there were multitudes of people on those porches that day, but not all of them were healed. And today there are multitudes who are not saved around you, but Jesus is willing to save them all, but they have to look to him. They're just waiting for something to happen in their lives, and maybe you're the one to tell them and show them the way. It's a lovely story. The Lord has shown us great things out of this. We have talked at this retreat about a woman who was thirsty and found living water, and a man who couldn't walk who was by a pool and God healed him, and a king who was terrified, and God said, don't be afraid. Your God is greater. He has overcome Satan. He has overcome the world. I would say to you today, do you want to be made well? Maybe there's something in your life that you have hidden <laughs> or that you just can't seem to get past. And maybe you even really want to, but you just can't. Jesus can do that for you. If he can overcome the world, he can overcome that thing in your life that has plagued you. And he can help you with that. Just turn to him. You have to make the decision. My mom was a Christian. She got saved at a tent meeting when she was 12 years old. Her 17-year-old sister took her. And they both came to the Lord and their mother. And so my mom grew up, but not knowing a lot spiritually, not attending a good church. She didn't grow a lot. And she ended up marrying my dad, who was not a Christian. And after they were married, she really realized he wasn't a Christian. And so she went in Minnesota to the neighbor's house through the snow every day to pray for my dad. And my dad got very sick, pneumonia, 105 fever in the hospital. And he knew he might not make it. And every day, my mom sent the minister to go talk to him. Every day, he came faithfully. And the minister got really tired of it. And one day, he just said to my dad, Phil, don't you want to be saved? And my dad said, for some reason, he knew that he knew it was his last chance. You see, it says my spirit will not always strive with men. And if you harden your heart long enough one day, you will be cut off. No more opportunity. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It was done for. And my dad said, I knew it was my last chance. And I cried out to the Lord. And I said, the most interesting thing happened. All the scriptures that I had heard, sermons I had gone to, he would shave, my mom said, and quote, though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. What does that mean? And he didn't get it. He had gone to church with my mom one time. And I mean, he had gone several times because he wanted to make my mom happy. He loved her. And the sermon, now remember my dad's name was Philip. The title of the sermon when the minister got up said, my title today for my sermon is, Oh, Philip, how long have you known me? I mean, how long have I been with you and you have not known me? And my dad almost fell off the pew, and he looked at my mom. He said, you told that pastor I was coming. She said, I didn't. I didn't say anything. He said, no. But God was after him like the hound of heaven. And on this day, knowing it was his last chance, he said, I receive you. And he said, every scripture that had been a puzzle to me became clear as crystal. And he went home, and he changed his life. That's what God does. He made a whole new creature out of him. In me, you might have peace, Jesus said. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. 
I want to read you something in closing today because it is just such an inspiration. I read it. I wish I could tell you where I found it, and I can't. In some book somewhere, maybe devotional. But it is about heaven, and it describes it, and it makes you long for it. We should be concerned about the future, where we're going to go in eternity, because we're going to spend the rest of eternity there. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 says, He waited for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. What is this final home, our destination, going to look like, this heaven? It is a country where there is no sorrow or tears or heartache, a country in which there's no sickness, pain, or death. Folks don't get tired. They don't grow old or ever have to say goodbye again. No disappointments, no sin, no accidents, no earthquakes, no hurricanes, that covers California and Florida, no germs or fever or pestilence of any kind. Pestilence are diseases. The sun never shines, and yet it is always light, for there is no night there. It is never too hot or too cold. No dark clouds ever darken the sky or fierce winds blow. There is no immorality. No prisons, jails, murders, rapes, or drugs. Doors have no locks and windows no bars, for thieves do not enter there. No lustful magazines or books are read, as for pornography it is never seen. No taxes are paid and rents are unknown. It is a country free from war and bloodshed and terrorists. There are no cripples there, no blind or deaf or dumb or deformed, there are no beggars seen on the street, for none are destitute, everyone has enough. No one is mentally ill. Cancer and AIDS and Alzheimer's do not exist there. No hospitals or doctors, they are not needed. The construction of its walls are of jasper and the city was pure gold. The foundations of the walls are adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. Do you want to go there? Whoever desires, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. We are just traveling programs, and we need to remind ourselves where we're headed. We're just not home yet. The other night, Madison and Taylor spent the night. I love it when they come. And little Madison is now seven. And I had on a ring that had gold in it. And she says, Mimi, I love to talk about heaven and Jesus and things. Where are your parents? I said, they're in heaven. She said, oh. I said, you're going to meet them. And Papa's are there, too. Oh, I'm so excited. And she just gets thrilled. I love the faith of a child. And I said, you see my ring? It's gold. When you get to heaven, Madison, the streets are made out of this stuff. Oh, really? She loves jewelry. I go, yeah, they are. It's nothing in heaven. May we have the faith of a child. May we be so excited that we're going to be there, and I'm going to see all of you there. Because I think most of all of you know Jesus in this room. Isn't it going to be wonderful? It's going to be lovely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you love us so much. That, Lord, you came into the porches and you found us. 
sitting there crippled, and you saved us, and you changed us, and you healed us, and you gave us grace and mercy. And Lord, not only all that, that you're walking and overcome the world, but you're going to take us home with you someday. And it's going to be perfect and wonderful, and we are going to sing praises for all eternity. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you saved us, you redeemed us, that you died for us. Lord, I pray for every woman in this room. If some are going back to difficult situations, give them new eyes to see it. And Lord, heal the issues. Help them, strengthen them. May they see your miracles in the small things and in the big things. We love you, Jesus. Bless each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>